0: Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. So we're in this series, our Christmas series, and I'm going to just jump in this morning by talking about a certain type of movie fan. So there exists among moviegoers, movie lovers, a, what I'm going to call a sort of movie snobbery, like a subculture of movie fans, uh, particularly here in the United States, that it's, I'm, I'm commenting on this not because they have a particular liking or dislike of a movie type, but because they look down on the people who like this movie genre. And so it goes something like this. Good stories, true Well-told stories, stories of depth and artistry, have no element of science fiction in them. There's no semblance of special effects in these movies. And God forbid there be anything like a character uh, that's a superhero. Uh, This is uh, something that's emerged over the last 30 years in movie culture, and it's not that, you know, I probably have members of my own family who don't particularly like unrealistic fiction. It's not that that's their their liking, it's that they look down on and talk with kind of a condescending tone toward people who do like sci-fi or who do like unrealistic fiction. And the disdain, the disdain by this community of how the the, the movies that actually fill theaters today and create buzz in movie houses and actually create long lines on opening night that happen to be CGI movies or unrealistic action movies, Uh, the disdain runs deep. And so if you are somebody that really doesn't like sci-fi or this kind of extreme fiction, uh, I'm not critiquing you. I'm critiquing those who look down on the rest of us, who uh, sometimes do love this kind of uh, movie experience. And so, all I'm going to say personally, in response to that that group, and I know there's none of them here. None of you are 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 like this. But uh, my personal response is: I am so excited that Avatar comes out Friday. <laughs> All right, so, so the Christmas story is looked at by many people as fiction. And I don't even know if it's a, a conscious thing. It's, it's ingrained in so much of our tradition that the idea or the concept, the understanding that Luke, one of the many apostles, one of the four record keepers, and Storytellers of the Life of Jesus tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he researched well, that he interviewed eyewitness accounts. He, he went to towns and villages in writing his report on the life of Jesus. He talked with the other apostles, the the, the disciples of Jesus. See, in our day, we think, well... That just seems sort of random, like he's just kind of casually doing this from his house. He's not in like a Washington Post-type office or New York Times kind of office, sitting behind a computer with, with high storage. But in, in Jesus' day, in the Roman Empire, this was the stuff of very good journalism. We've talked here often about how in history, in the ancient world, if there was one biographer, one that recorded the events or nuances of the life of a king or an emperor, that was credibility. That is what a lot of our history is based off of, with, uh, on one world leader or one regional leader, because one biographer, and for Jesus to have four, who carefully, painstakingly, would travel, would, would speak themselves, would talk of their own eyewitness accounts, It's pretty remarkable how many people today really don't have that that perspective. They have the perspective of hearing bits and pieces of the story in Christmas carols. You know, once a year they see in, in random front yards nativity scenes. And so the translation today often is that this is some kind of mythological legend. And what's interesting to me as a, as a movie fan, like, like most of you I know, and someone who started a film festival, is that though Christmas isn't fiction, it actually, the story of Christmas, actually influences the way our world looks at and takes in fiction today. Now, stay with me. This, is, this has fascinated me for a long time. A pastor in New York City that I've, I've followed for years, Tim Keller, he wrote something in this book I'm going to read to you in just a moment. But we actually have uh, a process of intaking fiction, I believe, because of the way the Christmas story actually unfolded as a real story in time and space. So I I read this uh, just this week in prep for this morning. In 2001, this week, actually, in 2001, the first Lord of the Rings movie was about to come out. And a movie critic named Anthony Lane wrote for The New Yorker, and he writes kind of this chastising sort of, uh, I read it as sort of a condescending tone, toward the world that's been enamored by Tolkien, and this fantasy type of literature that has hardly any realism in in it at at all and the movie's about to come out and everybody's predicting it's going to be this blockbuster and of course Lord of the Rings was and Anthony Lane in the New Yorker is writing kind of a challenge to Americans like wake up this isn't real why are you spending your energy your your mental capacity your mental emotional energy on fantasy like, smart people, educated people are grounded in reality. And he's sort of calling, it's really kind of a rebuke of, of, of those that would, would give themselves time, part of their life, to fantasy kind of language. And it's interesting to me that even though that's sort of a notion, you know, by this, by this snobbery kind of, you know, subculture that I, I've referred to, Hollywood continues to make more and more and more of these kinds of movies. And I believe it's because deep in our soul, and yes, I'm using the word soul, deep within us is a craving for this kind of story. And I don't mean we just kind of crave make believe, just make believe stuff, or things that aren't real, impossible to happen, unrealistic stories. I don't think it's that we're craving, I believe we're craving something that isn't in this world, something that seems to be missing in this broken world that we live in. There's, there, there's got to be more. The idea of, of communicating with beings that aren't just regular people. The idea of living longer than we're told that we can here in, in human life on earth. There's something deep within us. And I've thought this for years, and when I read this fall... Timothy Keller is a pastor in New York City, just a fantastic teacher, and he wrote a Christmas book called Hidden Christmas. I'd never read it. And I'm going to read a portion of this to you. Now, if you think this is about fiction versus reality only, or Brad's talking a lot about movies this morning, stay with me. This has so much to do with the way you are wired, the way you and I are designed as human beings. When, when When I read this, I... It's it so resonated in me, this, this observation I've made for years. And I thought he worded this even just, just better than anyone I've, I've, I've heard articulate this. The great fairy tales and legends, Beauty of the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, King Arthur, Faust, did not really happen. Of course, they are not factually true. And yet they seem to fulfill a set of longings in the human heart that realistic fiction can never touch or satisfy. That is because deep in the human heart, there are these desires to experience the supernatural, to escape death, to know love that we can never lose, to not age but live long enough to realize our creative dreams, to fly, to communicate with non-human beings, to triumph over evil. If the fantasy movies or stories are well told, we find them incredibly moving and satisfying. Why? It is because even though we know that factually the stories didn't happen, our hearts long for these things, and a well-told story momentarily satisfies these desires, scratching the terrible itch. Beauty and the Beast tells us there's a love that can break us out of the beastliness that we have created for ourselves. Sleeping Beauty tells us we are in a kind of sleeping curse and that there is a noble prince who can come and destroy it. We hear these stories and they stir us because deep inside our hearts we believe or we want to believe that these things are true. Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. Our hearts sense that even though the stories themselves aren't true, the underlying realities behind the stories are somehow true or ought to be true. But our minds say no and critics say no. They insist that when you give yourself to fairy stories and you really believe in moral absolutes and the supernatural and the idea that we are going to live forever, that is not reality and it is cowardly to give yourself to it. Then we come to the Christmas story. And at first glance, it looks like all the other legends. Here's a story about someone from a different world who breaks into ours and has miraculous powers and can calm the storm and heal people and raise people from the dead. Then his enemies turn on him, and he is put to death, and it seems like all hope is lost. But finally, he rises from the dead and saves everyone. We read that, and we think, another great fairy tale. Indeed, it looks like the Christmas story is one more, one more story pointing to these underlying realities. But Matthew's gospel refutes that by grounding Jesus in history. We talked about this last week. Why does Matthew start the Christmas story, his gospel? Why does he start the New Testament? with a genealogy. On first read, it just reads like this boring history of ancestry lineage. Matthew is grounding Jesus in time and space from real people, from real towns and villages and cities. This was the stuff of ancient journalism. This was, as we said last week, this is, this is what you do when you challenge your readers, go ask for yourselves, go to the towns. Ask the questions of the ancestors. It's interesting that the the gospel writers are placing Jesus among real people, in real places. Matthew says, this is no fairy tale. Jesus Christ is not one more lovely story pointing to these underlying realities. Jesus is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. Jesus Christ has come from that eternal supernatural world that we sense is there. That our hearts know is there, even though our heads say no. At Christmas, he punched a hole between the ideal and the real. The eternal and the temporal. And he came into our world. That means, if Matthew is right, that there is an evil sorcerer in this world. And we are under a curse of dark. And there is a noble prince who has broken the, the, the curse. And there is a love from which we will never be parted. And we will indeed fly someday. And we will defeat death. We're even told in the scripture someday even the trees are going to dance and sing in Psalm 65, Psalm 96. Put another way, even though the fairy fairy tales aren't factually true, the truth of Jesus means all the stories we love are not escapism at all. In a sense, they or the supernatural stories to which they point will come true in him. And I believe there is this longing. You know, we, it, it's so easy to look at a long line outside of a movie theater in the rain. These people, like, what are they doing? Spending their money in their Friday nights, you know, waiting to see a Marvel movie. You know, Star Wars is just built on the light and dark theme and how we're constantly, we crave the light, but we're constantly pulled toward the dark. There's so much that could be said about Harry Potter, The invisible world that is more real than the the visible world. In the constant pull toward selfishness or elevating yourself. There's something in these stories. Uh, It's Alton's birthday today. Alton's become our... My mom's here today. It's her birthday today, too. Uh, Alton... Alton's one of our directional leaders, as many of you know, and he just surprised all of us and not only published a sci-fi novel, but a trilogy. And the publisher has already asked him to write a fourth, you know, like a a sequel to the trilogy uh, called The Marligans. And I would put The Marligans in this category. There's something about futuristic or sci-fi or what we would say is more unrealistic fiction that is Drawing out of us a craving that we have to experience something beyond ourselves. The first part of Matthew, last week, we looked at the very opening of Matthew's words with the genealogy. Not only does he put Jesus in time and space as a real person in reality. He also uses uh, inferences in his genealogy that point to so much hurt in pain among his grandparents and great-grandparents, mistakes and regrets that they had. Matthew intentionally calls to mind, Jesus came into our darkness, the darkness of humanity. He loves us so much, he doesn't want to leave us in the pain or the loneliness or the betrayal, the bullying of our world, the constant challenges that we face. We all find ourselves craving when we grieve, when we grieve loss, that we wish not only we had more time with our loved ones, there's something something in our spirit that feels that this isn't right, that we're losing people we love. And I believe it speaks to that hardwiring in our DNA that craves what God intended, what he created in the garden before humans chose selfishly. The scriptures say that the effect of our selfishness, of taking control away from God, or attempting to take control and be in control, was that we broke creation. And God designed creation to function this way. It will thrive in perpetual life and creativity and good and beauty when we are centered around the creator. When we alter that center, when we make ourselves the center, it leaves creation in this marred, broken state. And God, Matthew tells us in the beginning of his account, God cared too much for you and me to leave us in darkness. The fighting, the gossip, the family dysfunction. Your deep hurt, loneliness, your struggle to forgive. Your uncertainty about the future. He loved you and me too much to leave us in this struggle trying to figure out the future. What is this about? carrying our regrets, to some degree, shame. He came to change us. He came to change our perspective of others, our perspective of ourselves, our our view of the future. He came to re-align us, to reset the trajectory of our lives back toward what he created you and me to be. The beauty That you and I crave, we deeply crave. And this takes us to the second part of Matthew's introduction of the Christmas story. God didn't just come one Christmas night and light up the dark sky or make some kind of an announcement and then leave. He didn't even come to just prove his reality and say, Wow, you people live in a dark place, and where I live is light. And good, and you really should wish you lived where I live. He didn't even come to say, hey, I live in a better place, and if you work really hard, you can make it to where I am someday. God came to be with us in our darkness, in our struggle, in our heartache. And this is where Matthew continues his introduction to the, not just the person Jesus, not just the Messiah But God, who would undo, he would begin the undoing of all things broken, all loss, all death. And so Matthew continues, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. You know, she really could have been stoned in her culture. That just seems so archaic to us. But in Old Testament Jewish culture, following the Mosaic Law, this was, this was horrific. And Joseph being embarrassed and hurt and angry, and yet being a man of integrity and not wanting to publicly shame her, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angelos, that original Greek word that means one who gives voice, a messenger who gives voice to what's true. We're going to talk about this on Christmas Eve in two weeks. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from God's spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which means rescuer. One who's arrived to rescue. Because he will save his people from their selfishness and their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they and Matthew intentionally, as he did in the genealogy with inferences to certain grandparents and great-grandparents, and he does this as a pattern, he intentionally uses this language recalling Isaiah's words, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew himself goes ahead. They they don't have parentheses in Koine Greek. But as a sentence add-on, much the way we have parenthetical statements, he says they will call him Emmanuel. He uses that original word, and then he, he defines it. He translates it. It means, remember, it means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded and took Mary home to be his wife. This word Emmanuel, Matthew's doing very, you know, we we, we tend to read these words like tradition. Oh, yeah, this is part of the Christmas. We read these are on Christmas cards and they're in some of the Christmas carols. Matthew is writing intentionally from the heart of God to you and me. And when he gets to this climatic moment, this isn't a God who's going to hover in the sky for a few moments. This isn't a God who's going to speak through some kind of earthquake. This is a God who loves us, even in our darkness, even in our selfishness so much that he's coming to be with us. So, two thoughts here in the remainder of our time here on this idea of Emmanuel. And the first is that he's God. This is God we're talking about. Matthew, of course, we've just read it. He says it is the first, what we have as the first gospel writer in the introduction to Jesus. It's Emmanuel. God is coming to walk and live and feel our pain and experience our loneliness and our betrayal and our hurt. And though he won't, Choose selfishly, he will know our selfishness. He'll take our selfishness on himself. John, you could argue that John was Jesus' closest friend, the closest of the disciples. John and his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, tells us that Jesus is actually the Word of God, the messenger, the voice of God. Jesus has always existed, John tells us in John 1. He created everything. We tend to think of Jesus just sort of not really existing in any sort of form until his birth. But we're told in in numerous places that Jesus was actually the architect of creation. John refers to that in, in his first chapter. And John says, and he was God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And we in our, you know, our limited understanding in a world where everybody, everything's been created. we Well, wait, was he God or was he with God? Was he with the father or is he? But the, the union of God, father, son, Holy Spirit is so one in the same. The closest picture we have of this today in our world the New Testament tells us, is us and our love for one another, another, our unity. Yes, people see us as individuals, but they see us functioning in the world as one, one heart, serving those in need together, loving one another. And I would just say today in, in our world, divided as we are as a country, Republican and Democrat, and there's, there's a particular attraction to society and culture today when Republicans and Democrats are one, not because of their politics, but because of something so much deeper that is their experience and their reality. And we say it repeatedly here, our common unity. Our common unity here at Dulles is Jesus, the way of Jesus, the movement of Jesus in this world. It's this oneness John is saying, but he continues, he was God, I'm sorry, he was with God in the beginning through all things Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Paul, the apostle Paul, he says, not half, not a third, not half, not most, but all the fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. We read this in Colossians 2. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, through the righteousness, what is right to God. That's what righteousness means. Through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're one and the same. The rightness of God, the Father, is the rightness of Jesus. I mean, consistently through the New Testament, it's Jesus is God here. Among us, Jesus Jesus himself. He constantly told people he would forgive their sins. Only God can do that. Jesus healed time and time again. Only God can do that. He repeatedly said, I will come back one day to make all things new. Only God can do that. And Jesus said consistently that he was God. And this this claim creates for you and me, for every human being, a personal crisis. This is the stuff of crisis. Either Jesus is who he said he was, or he wasn't. There's no ambiguity about this. He's not some kind of mythological legend, but yeah, he was kind of real. I know know he was historical. We know that. The world accepts that he lived, but it's just sort of this, in, in, in many people's minds, this gray area. It's one or the other. He either was God because he claimed over and over, and so did all of his followers. This is God who's come in the flesh. Or he wasn't. And if he wasn't, You're wasting your time right now listening to me talk. You're probably thinking Brad looks kind of Christmassy this morning, wearing the shirt he's wearing. The Commanders have a bye today, which is maybe good. They're going to play the Giants next week. Hopefully all four NFC East teams might end up in the playoffs. What are you going to eat for lunch today? It's more valuable to think those things right now than to be considering what we're talking about if Jesus wasn't who he said he was. But if he was, if he did the, the, the things that so many people tell us he did, you should center every aspect of your life around him. And I'm telling you, I think if, if listen, if, I'm, not, I'm not saying this because I feel critical toward you or anybody, if anything, I'll just say from, from my journey of faith and particularly my early years of, of stepping into faith and really following Jesus. So from my own experience, if, if, you, if you don't center every part of your life around Jesus, it probably means you see a lot of his story as fiction. It's astounding what he's claimed. That he came as God. God chose to... Not from the safety of the clouds, and not just through the voice of some angels, but he came to make his dwelling, his habitat, earth, humans, in a particularly dark time of history. Some people today, you know, with all that's going on in America, it's so, it's so easy for Americans to only see America. And I, I've heard over the last, you know, four, six, ten years, just often that, yeah, things have never been so bad. Things are just so bad. They've never been so bad. That's just not true. (laughs) It's just not true. When things may have been the worst, you could argue that the worst of human history was in the days of Jesus, in the southeastern corner of the Roman Empire. It's no accident that Jesus came when he did among the people that he came to. If Jesus is not who he says, then the whole story is really, let's just say it, it's nonsense. If he is God, then your entire life should revolve around what he said. Not just who he was, but who he is. The explanation, I believe, for how so many people can believe in Jesus. There's billions, billions of people believe that Jesus was God. And yet, there's so many people, just in the expression of their lives, when I have coffee with, you know, people, friends around the country, when I'm on Zoom chats, just, just in everyday life, there's so many people who conceptually believe that Jesus was God, and yet, it hasn't changed their life. It doesn't recalibrate the way they think about other people. It doesn't change the way they look at their past, or their mistakes, or brokenness, or maybe the divorce, or just... Their struggle as parents. It doesn't change the way they look at division. What you do with your resources. How you look at people who are in need. Or how you look at people who vote differently than you. How is that? How can people believe that Jesus actually, came, God actually came? It was God who came here. And he did these extraordinary things. And then he took our mistakes and regrets and selfishness to the cross. And it was essentially killed. The punishment of our selfish choosing was taken on by someone else. And then he defeats death. And it did not change your perspective of the future. Or fill you with hope. I believe it's because it's one thing to accept that Jesus was God and it's something altogether transformative to believe that he came here to be with us. You believe that, you start remeasuring everything. You start viewing the future differently. You become more willing to surrender control of your life to that person. The second thought here, it, it, it's God who came to be with us. And the second part of Emmanuel that just I, I noted here and wanted to spend some time on this month is that he came to be in our mess, in our darkness. Andrew and Jesse just had little Theo Sweet little baby Theo. And, you know, I've I've been, I am a, I was going to say I've been a parent. I am a parent. And and yet you forget. Isn't it crazy how you forget? You know, I saw Theo the first time and I'm like, his fingers are so tiny. It's like, well, I should know that. I know that's how this works. But, wow, he's just so innocent and vulnerable. And, you know, Amy uses the wording like, I just want to eat him up. I just want to eat her up. I've heard her say that so many times with babies. And I, like, I just want to cuddle, you know? Isn't that the instinct? Even if you're kind of afraid of babies, there's still a part of you that just kind of wants to cuddle them, you know? Why did Jesus come as a baby? We just accepted that. It's, just, it's in front yards and plastic figures It's it's just the way it is. We sing it in songs. We we don't question it. Why didn't he come as like a tornado? Or as some prehistoric animal? Or some kind of mist? Or maybe a, a, a pillar of fire? As with the Israelites in the Old Testament. It's because he came... To show us that God's ultimate heart. Where this is ultimately going is. God. Is approachable. And he wants to know you. And he wants to be known by you. He didn't come. In judgment. He didn't come to judge you. He came to take on your judgment. To take your judgment away from you. John. In his. Introduction to Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The word became flesh and made his living, his habitat, his everyday life among you and me. The incarnation did not happen just to show us or tell us that God exists. It happened to bring, it it happened so that God would be brought close to you and me and that we would be brought near to him. It's it's obvious our communication with babies and then eventually toddlers, kids, young adults, it's vastly different, vastly different than the way we communicate with nature or with animals or even pets or with computers. (laughs) I mean, in today's world, I mean, let's use that language, we communicate with human beings differently than anything else. And God so wants to be known by you and me. <clears throat> and so here's, here's the question this morning. I'm going to invite our band. Our band's going to close us this morning and worship. And so just, if, if you would, just eyes, eyes on me and just hear these final thoughts here. As we set to close our morning. This is the way I've written it. In, in um, my notes. and my heart. I hope I convey this. It's going to come out very simple. But it's so profound. What I feel God is asking of us. Do you want to know about God? Do you want to know more about him? This is what we're good at. This is what a church is to a lot of us. You know we're, we're growing a church here. Our vision here, it's, 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 we're not trying to be a perfect group of people. We are trying to be imperfect people, a collection of imperfect people who become the expression of God's love and good and creativity to the world around us. And we're just, you know, we're, we're growing, we're inviting people to be that movement with us. But um, I think we've learned through classroom models, We have so many teachers here in our church community. We've learned uh, really from our parents. We've learned from culture and society that you go to church to learn more about God. And my question is, do you want to learn more about him or do you want to know him? You want to know more about him, this God who came, this God who did in the past, Jesus who was God, or do you want to know him? Because this is his heart for you. When you're driving to work on Tuesday mornings, when you're dealing with stress, with coworkers, your boss, with r- just relationships. I, I was joking with a family here just a little bit ago. Um, I said, hey, how are you guys? Good to see you. And they kind of, we're okay. It's been one of those mornings. They were honest with me. Most people aren't. Most of you aren't honest on Sunday mornings. <laughs> and they were honest. And I said, man, you don't have... Ha- You don't know how many times Pastor Brad and his family were driving to church for years in an argument. Amy and I are just arguing with each other. We walk through the door and we're smiling. Hey, hey, it's good to see you today. God wants to know you in your pain, in the struggle, the family struggle. He wants to know you. He wants to direct you. He wants to become... That increased voice of prompting in your spirit. He wants to show you what he's really up to in the difficult job situation where you're like, why? This makes no sense. And so we we, my final words here this morning are just this prayer to God. It's a prayer of surrender. Jesus, may we surrender. To you, to this idea, this, that this, what, what can so easily seem like fiction. We're just out of touch. It's, it's some kind of reality, but it seems out of touch from my reality. That you can be known. You want to be in the car with us. You want to be in the work meetings with us. You want to be in the relationship challenges. And you want to be in our wins and our dreams what we're dreaming about for the future. The hurt and the mistakes, the talents and gifts, you want to be known in every part of our lives. You were so committed to this, you came. You, God, creator, came to live with us, to know our lives, our struggle, our temptations. And God, I pray that you give us courage to follow that inner prompting of what we know deep in our souls is true there is life beyond this world there is a reality beyond the daily grind there is hope for good and no more death no more disease and jesus give us the courage to stop trying to find it in human striving or human intellect A light has dawned on the world, and it did not come from us. It has come from outside. And that light is you.